Despite writers and actors' strike against Hollywood studios, the Barbenheimer double feature was a huge success. At the turn of the 20th century, of course, this was a miracle. It was magic. When people first see the movies, they're just utterly blown away. It's, they're spellbound. Uh, you know, there's a famous story of uh, the, you know, what's usually considered the first great American narrative film, The Great Train Robbery, uh, when that's shown in New York. The audience was so stunned by actually seeing a kind of credible story of a train robbery <laughs> and the desperados get, getting captured by the good guys that they refused to let the projectionist leave the theater until he showed it again. 1915 is the year that Hollywood, in a way, ceases to be a distinct geographical location in a place in California, you know, near Los Angeles, yeah. and becomes Hollywood, you know, becomes this oh, uh, wow. template for our dreams. I would say Chapman would, might be called the first uh, universal silhouette of the movies. Everybody would know who Chaplin was. Uh, you could like sort of uh, show a, ch a Chinese man a picture of Chaplin, he'd know who he was. Uh, you know, the Frenchman, the American, of course. Uh, he was uh, probably more universally recognized uh, than the Pope or, you know, a great general. He wants to see the new Mae West movie. And Mae West, of course, mm -hmm. was the famous sexually provocative wisecracker. Yeah, uh, who could make a phone book sound dirty if she read it. And <laughs> as, he's, as he's walking up to the theater, who does he see next to the, the ticket window but his parish priest, who, of course, knows my father on sight. You know? And my dad just keeps on walking. You know, He's going to buy a ticket. <laughs> no way. Wait, was the, the priest buying tickets? No. No, no. He was there <laughs> to check that the parish, the parishioners weren't going to the Main West movie. Oh, this is now, so funny. Is everybody in America knows that Hollywood is not just this dumb entertainment machine, but that Hollywood is a powerful transmission belt for ideas and ideology. In, 19, in, in the 1950s, what happens, and this is related to what's happening today in some ways, uh, there's another huge revenue stream uh, from television. And so all the films ah. made in the classical Hollywood era in the 30s and 40s can now be sold to television, and the talent who created this material uh, doesn't get a piece of the action at all. Did you know that the Three Stooges, Larry, Curly, and Moe, with their physical and slapstick comedy that we all know, never got a dime for all their movies we saw on our TVs? Why, you may ask, because those residual incomes were not in their contracts. Hey there, news peelers. Today is July 28th, 2023. And this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both, and let's get into it. 
citing estimates from the National Association of Theater Owners, the Wall Street Journal reported that the movies Oppenheimer and Barbie were purchased as a pair this weekend by more than 200,000 moviegoers. The double feature is an unlikely pair, but then again, a repeat of their $302 million success at the box office this past weekend may also be unlikely. According to the Wall Street Journal, this time of the year, back in 2019, the summer before COVID, domestic box office sales were at $6.4 billion. This year, sales are considerably less, $4.6 billion. That's a 29% drop. The success of Barbenheimer happened against the backdrop of Hollywood's strike that started two weeks ago, when actors joined writers who were already on strike and, on Friday, July 14, Screen Actors Guild ended their contract negotiations with the studios as well. As a result, Killian Murphy and Emily Blunt, the lead actors in Oppenheimer, walked out of that movie's premiere in London. Hollywood actors and writers are on strike because of their grievances about their compensation, the royalties they receive, and the use of AI, artificial intelligence. I think we all saw Fran Drescher's passionate speech. I'll read part of it here for you. Quote, the entire business model has changed by streaming, digital, artificial intelligence. If we don't stand tall right now, we're all going to be in trouble. We're all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines and big business. Unquote. As my guest in this episode, Professor Thomas Doherty explains, this strike is similar to the 1960s strike in that in the 1950s, technology changed everything. Back then, the new technology was TV. Now, it's streaming and AI. But Professor Doherty also explains how the situation in this strike is much more dire than the one back in 1960. Because, you probably guessed it, because of AI. You see, with AI, the studios not only could potentially supplant writers, but they also own the actor's likeness. What that means is that with AI, you don't just lose your job. You lose yourself. For now, though, actors, that is, real human actors, are very important to the movie's promotion, so much so that many studios are actually thinking about postponing their releases until the actor's strike is over. Professor Doherty confirms this point. He tells me that aside from perhaps Tom Cruise, we don't really have actors that can open a movie like the actors of the 20th century could, like Charlie Chaplin. Professor Doherty also talks about the magic of the movies back when it all started. Nowadays, for most people, while movies are still entertaining, the magic is just not there anymore. Maybe because we have so much access to films, images, animations, and all sorts of entertainments that monopolize our time. But maybe there's something we can do to bring back some of that magic. And here, I'll take a lesson from my daughter. This past weekend, she and her friends went to see Barbie. And yes, the movie was good. They all liked it. But more than the movie itself, getting dressed up for a night out was even more fun. I think, in fact, it was actually the point for them to be out together. Maybe that's what we should start doing from now on. Instead of wearing shorts and flip-flops, maybe we should treat going to the movie theater as something special. Get dressed up, plan it with friends, go to dinner. Maybe this will bring back some of the magic. Professor Doherty is a cultural historian with a special interest in Hollywood cinema. He's a professor of American Studies at Brandeis University. He's the author of many books, including the following. 
pre-cold Hollywood, Sex, Immorality, and Insurrection in American Cinema, 1930-1934, and also the following book, Show Trial, Hollywood, HUAC, and the Birth of the Blacklist. These are books that we discuss in this episode. To learn more about Professor Doherty, you can visit his academic homepages, the links for which are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Professor Doherty and I peel the history behind this news. Professor Doherty, it's a pleasure to have you in our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Let's begin with Hollywood's very beginning. Uh, a- we've we've had live theater. Uh, how far back? How far back do you want to go? Uh, well, I'll tell you in a second. We've had live yeah. theater in a variety of forms for centuries, yeah. but by the late 1800s, motion pictures and later motion picture theaters began to appear, not just in in the U.S., in our country, but also, let's say, in Germany. Mm-hmm. How did this nascent business grow into the extremely popular and powerful movie industry? And I'll add, within a relatively short period, how did this happen? Well, part of it, of course, is just the magic of the moving image. And one thing, you know, when I teach these classes at Brandeis, and I think any, uh, you know, student or film buff uh needs to do is, uh, you know, we live in a world that's just surfight with images everywhere, right? On our phones, video screens, you know, everywhere we go, we see images and we're very familiar with the mechanical reproduction of ourselves. Uh, at the turn of the 20th century, of course, this was a miracle. It was magic. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of descriptions of the early audiences in the late 19th, early 20th century. Some of them are a little exaggerated, like the the famous and probably apocryphal story of, uh, when uh, you know French audiences first see the uh, the image of the train uh, coming at you uh, uh, that the Lemaire brothers uh, project that they allegedly ran out of the theater, and I think we, that's, that, that's probably a little bit apocryphal. But there are other accounts. That's kind of like seeing a three D train come at you, and yeah. you sort of freak out. Wow. But, that one's probably apocryphal, but there are other accounts, uh, fairly verified accounts of uh, when people first see the movies, they're just utterly blown away. It's, they're spellbound. Uh, you know, there's a famous story of uh, the, you know, what's usually considered the first great American narrative film, The Great Train Robbery, uh, when that's shown in New York. And we have the testimony from people who are in the theater. The audience was so stunned by actually seeing a kind of credible story of a train robbery <laughs> and the desperados get, getting captured by the good guys that they refused to let the projectionist leave the theater until he showed it again. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) There are stories uh, like the expression laughing in the aisles, which we use now kind of metaphorically. Somebody's really funny. He had them laughing in the aisles. Yeah. Uh, Apparently in the early 20th century, when audiences saw somebody like uh, Charlie Chaplin or one of the great uh, clowns, uh, you know, the Keystone Cops or somebody, they they would be so overtaken with laughter. They would literally keel over and roll down the aisles. And I love it. Yeah, there are also stories, Adele, of audiences being so profoundly moved by theater that they are by, by motion pictures uh, that they're they're weeping so hard that the theater rows start shaking. Uh, Lillian Gish tells a story. Oh, wow. One of the the uh, uh, screenings at Birth of a Nation, they had they invade, uh, invited some Confederate and Union veterans 
who, you know, there's a very emotional, the film's a racist hallucination, but it's got some great melodrama. And there's a great <laughs> melodramatic scene uh, where the, the soldier, and this could be true of any soldier coming back to his home and seeing his, his little sister and the home is destroyed. This and is a Civil War soldier. Yeah, it's a, it's a notoriously racist film, The Birth of a Nation, usually okay. considered the great narrative film. But it has this um, uh, amazingly emotional scene, which is something only cinema can do, where you do, there's, of course, there's no language and they're looking at each other and they're slowly kind of looking at the camera and then they're looking uh, at each other. And by all accounts, audiences are like sobbing uncontrollably when oh, they see wow. this, this moment. So, at, you know, I think the, the simple explanation for why this industry exploded is it was given people the the magic and the wonder and giving them these incredible artistic experiences the like of which they'd never had before uh so it's this wonderful artistic diversion and then america and this is one thing that i think is true of our tradition maybe more so than some other traditions is uh you didn't have to learn uh to read and write to appreciate the movies right good one yeah barely you, you barely need them in some films so uh it taught uh, a generation of uh, Irish, Jewish, Italian immigrants, how to be an American, right? Uh, how to- Interesting. Uh, how to, uh, you know, behave like a hip, good American guy, uh, what to do when you take a girl out on a date, uh, how you should behave, how she should behave. Uh, and so the, the instructional value of movies and teaching a whole range of American cultural values, most notably the individual, which of course is the uh, signature American character that you as an individual can control your life and uh, achieve something that your pleasure and your ability is really very important. And that's something that America gives to the world. Uh, yeah. Maybe it's the American films have, you know, despite everything retained so much of their popularity is that it, it gives this, you know, wonderful affirmative message of the, uh, the integrity and the worth and the power of the individual. Now, there are a lot of downsides, too, but I think one thing that American movies do give uh, the world is that sense of uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the American dream, uh, so-called. Dr. Dorothy, let me go back and ask two follow-up questions. There was a lot in there. Um, one, your, your, you know, you, you talked about a movie in which people were crying so much the the aisles were shaking, sobbing uncontrollably. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Does that happen anymore? Well, I think there are movies, you know, so-called tearjerkers that people yeah. get emotionally involved in. But not to that extent. Uh, well, part of it is we, you know, how many movies do we see a year? <laughs> Netflix, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, the unique or the specialness of that experience, especially in the uh, the first 30 years before sound kicks in around 1927 is the usually the landmark date. But by 1930, all the major Hollywood students uh, studios have uh, gone over to sound. Uh, there's a phrase, again, that uh, Lillian Gish, the actress, uses, uh, which is a title of a wonderful book uh, called Spellbound in Darkness. Isn't that a great title? It Where, is Spellbound in Darkness. Spellbound in Darkness and how, uh, you know, that generation of moviegoers would go to the theater 
And uh, of course, it's all silent. And usually the theater was, uh, you know, not like the box in a multiplex mall that we go to today. It had mm -hmm. like really good architecture. And it was a really nice event. If you were going to a so-called motion picture palace. And uh, by all accounts, people sort of uh, were absorbed by the narrative in a very, uh, you know, powerful and immersive way. Um, and, you know, part of that is they're just not seeing the number of moving image, the number of moving images that we that we see. Yeah. And so we, we live with these images in a way that other generations didn't. So when they went to the movies, it was much more of a special event. D.W. Griffith uses the phrase an evening's entertainment. That was his great ambition for motion pictures that just like a symphony orchestra or, or you know, legitimate theater or, or ballet, you could go to the movies and get uh, an evening's entertainment that would be on an artistic par with you know, a great stage show. I'll, I'll add two little anecdotes from my own personal life and in Palo Alto, uh, California. Uh, uh, the uh, Hewlett, fa Hewlett family has funded the Stanford movie theater there. And I've been there a couple of times and they still play the organ there yeah. during the movies. And you, you're not told to dress up, but people don't come in short. I mean, this is at least 10 years ago or 15 years ago, yeah. whenever it was that I went last. And I experienced the same thing over in Manchester, Minnesota, where they had an old movie theater and people still attend this. So that was really interesting. Um, one, another follow-up question. So I had, I told you I had two. So this is the second one. You talked about the images, motion picture, sort of the technological aspect of seeing this story. Mm -hmm. Did storytelling also become better, you think, or different? Because now it was condensed it was distilled. It was not a 400 page book anymore. Do you think that that well, was an impact? Well, it's, it's very interesting in the first say 30 years, which is this you know rich period of motion picture history yeah. where we're getting film grammar and the narratives and the genres uh, put together. Uh, there, there's a time, uh, you know, the first 10 years of cinema where people had just basically see anything that moved. And then the next 10 years, <laughs> Uh, and you don't care about narratives and like the Keystone cops are a good example of that. Yeah. You know, cops are just chasing people around just picaresque. Uh, you know, you see that two reeler one week, you see another two reeler and they're chasing people somewhere else. Uh, and then by the time of birth of a nation in 1915, and particularly as the, you know, the late teens and the early twenties move on, you, you just start, you start getting more uh, logical, better thought out, narratives that last 90 minutes and uh or two hours uh and they they make more a theatrical and novelistic sense like also oh, the earlier movies were even shorter uh yeah uh, but but uh, the, the, but what what you see is uh like in a lot of uh silent films of the teens and early 20s uh, stuff comes out of nowhere you get these deus ex machina that don't make sense somebody's personality <laughs> changes in the, in the last act and uh yeah and nobody seems to care but yeah and at a certain point in the early 20s it, it's like suddenly everybody eh, we can't get away with that anymore audiences want a coherent character and this might be they're more discerning right and this might be best illustrated in the silent comedians of the, the 1920s the great comedians like chaplin buster keaton harold lloyd where yeah. all of them realize when they move from say, uh, a 15, 20-minute short to a 60 to 80-minute feature-length film that 
audiences just aren't going to laugh for 80 minutes and they want a coherent character and a coherent story. I see. And you can't just be a stupid clown. Uh, you have to be more like a comedian. And the difference, of course, between the clown and the comedian is uh, uh, James Agee, I think uh, the critic points out, is the comedian gets the girl, right? You're not just a <laughs> grotesque. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and you can kind of laugh at somebody or, or with them for 15 or 20 minutes. But when you when you start making feature films, all these the great comedians, Chaplin, Keaton and Lloyd, all know that you actually have to have a story and a character that people get invested in and then invested. And then, of course, you've got the the comedic bits as well. Yeah. Uh, and Chaplin is probably, of course, as always, the great example of this. And even today, people still can't figure out Chaplin as this the unique genius of the first 30 years of cinema, certainly, where, you know, uh, audiences just couldn't figure out what he was doing to them. So you, you get a film like The Kid. Uh, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. The little boy. And he kind of has you, you know, rolling in the aisles at one point and then weeping the next. With the, you, you know, uh, with respect to Chaplin, you know, when you say audience won't just laugh for 80 yeah. minutes, Chaplin's movies... I've seen, you know, I saw him as a kid, then I saw a few of him here and there as an adult. When I look back, when I look back on it as an adult, I realized they were actually very heavy movies. Industrialization, yeah. poverty, class conflict. Uh, it, so you're, it had to be developed into a story and not just, you know, banging into things and people laughing. And he had done some of that in his shorts. Like people were aware very early on, like 1915 is the year Chaplin explodes. He's the first film superstar. Uh, they, in fact, the, there's a... a I'm sorry, what was his first first film? Uh, well, uh, there are a whole bunch of shorts he does, uh -huh. uh, you know, Tilly's uh, 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 Ruptured Romance and uh, where he sort of becomes the star. But 15, he does, uh, he uh, is the year where everybody knows who Chaplin is because he's releasing all Was that shorts. because of a specific film? Uh, no. It, it oh, was okay. a bunch I of different films that we know the character. I and, see, I see. And even at the time, people knew, uh, it, it, it's really amazing always when you look at the very early uh, sort of accounts of Chaplin where critics are, they know he is really something special. And 1915 is called the year of Chaplinitis. It's the first kind wow. of superstar Taylor Swift phenomenon we have in American <laughs> Uh And the extraordinary thing about Chaplin, one of the extraordinary things, is when he makes his first feature film, he kind of knows immediately that I got to do something different here. You know, and I got to sort of expand on the sentimentality. And as you were saying, there's, you know, that that's film is uh, the comedy is built in a really stark verisimilitude. This is about his childhood growing up in a Dickensian environment in in London in the late part of the 19th century. And it sort of has this you know, grim texture to it that the the comedy and the sentimentality is is built on. Uh, so in the 20s, we're starting to see what sort of looks like are modern motion pictures today. I see. Uh, the finely wrought feature length films that uh, have a degree of artistic uh, excellence that, uh, you know, film at its best will have forever after. So, Professor Doherty, why Hollywood? 
I don't know, why not San Francisco? Why not the outskirts of You've New York? San yeah, I grew up there, actually. Yeah. But uh, do you see Hollywood. what I mean? Yeah. Why Hollywood? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Uh, the, 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 the usual reason is that Hollywood is like God built this place in America that was perfect for motion pictures. Because if you think <laughs> of Hollywood, the okay. weather is almost always perfect. It's, you know, 70s. Uh, you know, if it rains, it's it, it's like a geographical disgrace. Uh, when sort of a, a you know, a, certainly a day's drive in and out, you've got all kinds of landscapes. You've got desert, you've got ocean, you've got mountains, uh, you know, you've got sort of a forest. Uh, you've got all kinds of different people there, right? You've got your Chinese, your Mexicans, uh, you know, the full range of immigrant groups. Uh, Indians are available. Yeah. Uh, so so you've you got the cast, you've got the locale, you've got the sun. And the other reason they all start coming out to Hollywood is they want to get away from the copyright that uh, Edison had uh, claimed over motion picture production. And so that was enforced more powerfully in the East, in New Jersey and New York, where, which was the center of early uh, 20th century American filmmaking. And then everybody realizes, well, by going out to Hollywood, not only is the weather great, but uh, you're kind of away from Edison and his goons. And that's that is awesome. Oh, that's so funny. Hollywood and fit. And we mentioned 1915 earlier. 1915 is the year that Hollywood, in a way, ceases to be a distinct geographical location in a place in California, you know, near Los Angeles. Yeah. And becomes Hollywood <laughs> now becomes this. Oh, uh, wow. Or our dreams. And you can actually trace it in the in the trade press accounts, because it, 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 in the beginning of 1915, uh, a reporter in Hollywood will say, in Hollywood, comma, which is where so many of the motion picture companies are now located, comma. And then by December, it's like Hollywood. It doesn't need a description anymore. That is wild. Yeah, I especially. You, know, you don't need the description. And that happens in 1915. Wow. That's very early on. Uh, I used to practice uh, intellectual property law. So when you talk about oh, yeah. uh, going to the West to flout uh, Edison's oh, oh, intellectual, just, that's really. Ring home to you. Uh, there there you are go. Some Edison's goons coming onto the sets and breaking up the cameras or confiscating. Oh, the wow. That is and really interesting. Carl Lemley uh, breaks the trust. He takes it to court and the court agrees with him that Edison can't copyright every piece of celluloid ever invented, which is what he's trying to do. I love in, it. Um, we'll be back after a short break to talk about Hollywood and America's culture. We'll be right back. Did you know that Fahrenheit 451, a book about book batting, was once banned in schools here in America? And did you know that an 1873 act by the U.S. Congress that enabled censorship of information about sexuality, abortion, and even contraceptives is still on the books? It's never been repealed. It's still federal law, albeit one that is thankfully seldom enforced. I learned all of this in a fun and fascinating conversation about the history of book banning with Professor Brett Gary of NYU. The link to my conversation with him in Season 2, Episode 15, is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Professor Doherty. Professor Doherty, was Chaplin Hollywood's first oh, yeah. he, major star, like first major star? 
Oh, he, uh, he was the, I would say Chaplin would, might be called the first uh, universal silhouette of the movies in the oh, sense wow. that everybody would know who Chaplin was. Uh, you could like sort of uh, show a, Ch a Chinese man a picture of Chaplin and he'd know who he was, uh, you know, the Frenchman, the American, of course. Uh, he was uh, probably more universally recognized uh, than the Pope or, you know, a great general. Oh, wow. Uh, so that sort of it shows you what imagistic popular culture uh, can do. I mean, you, you can yeah. go on the planet and, you know, project a picture of Batman or whoever. And, and no matter how remote you are from major centers of communication, uh, a crowd will know who those people are. Exactly. Some someone Chapman, and Chapman really is the first. So the reason I asked that question is this. Uh, what I want to know is, was stardom in the movies then similar to now like you know now people go they have these buses in hollywood that you go see where they live and but that's been around for decades but like follow them on social media emulate them and all of that or did it have a different feel back then uh no i think I, uh, of course we have more outlets for our stardom now and yeah yeah twitter uh but in in the early part of the you know when the stars are first emerging uh there's actually the first star in Hollywood history is this woman named Florence Lawrence. And she was oh. one of the first people to get billing because the motion picture producers uh, didn't want to give the actors more power. So they wouldn't give them billing in the film. And then they started noticing. Uh, I don't know people. what you mean by billing. Am I missing? Oh, uh, they wouldn't say Florence Lawrence in. Oh, know, oh, 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 I see. I see. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. But what would happen is audiences would start coming by the theater and saying, we want to see that biograph girl, you know, the, the, the cute brunette, we want to see her. That's when Carl Lemley, the Universal, uh, the founder of Universal uh, Pictures, uh, decides that this is what bring, it brings audiences in. Not so much even the story, but the character that we want to spend time with. Sort of, And that's what a star is. It's somebody uh, we want to uh, both behold look at they're prettier than we are and also uh the the mysterious quality of uh, uh they have that electricity on the screen you know that sense of attraction yeah yeah and uh and that's a still a very mysterious quality it really um, is well mel gibson has this great line uh where he says you know start you know it's really funny you'll see this fantastic looking woman on the street you'll bring her in for a screen test put her up in the screen nothing there's nothing there and really says, yeah and then he says fortunately in my case it worked the other way around uh, <laughs> right? and he, he's not saying that out of uh any kind of vanity it, it's yeah. like oh, yeah i have this quality and, and you see it in in sort of uh you know actors or stars that you want you want to follow you want to be yeah. with those people uh and uh and that's you know sort of what is what a star is that that sense not not just a physical attraction because there are people uh, stars who are or people who don't become stars who are very attractive physically and yeah. then there are others who may be a you know a bit off from the norm you know Gary or uh, Clark Gable had these big ears and you know that's what you know the casting <laughs> yeah, directors yeah. always said yeah his ears are too big and it yeah. turned out people really didn't care people, uh, yeah. because he had that that, that magnetism too so and that's and the beginning of the star system, Dell, starts in the 1920s with the whole ancillary 
pop culture surrounding the star, fan magazines and, you know, comic strips and, uh, you Not know, too I, different than now. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it starts in the 20s, our modern sense of uh, the star with billboard advertising. Uh, of course, posters now are always going to highlight the star uh, because those are the people that uh, sold the movies. So when I, if I went to the movies in the 20s or 30s, I'd say, I want to see a Clark Gable film. I want to see a Betty Davis film. I wouldn't know who the director was. You know, yeah. Modern the 1960s so i'm excited about to go see oppenheimer because it's you know christopher nolan film right and he's got this great reputation i don't know who cillian murphy is i hear he's good but like i'm going for the director right yeah and uh and that wasn't true throughout most of classical hollywood uh you know you went to a betty davis or a joan crawford movie to a great extent, that's still the case. You go after the stars that you want to see their movies. There's a, there are even options uh, when you stream to just pick that actor's films. Um, I want but to use the very few Please. people today can so call open a movie. You know, Tom Cruise might be our, our last example of that, where uh, where uh, we will follow him to a motion picture. But there are very few others where in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, the great stars really could open, open a movie. movie. Yeah, they had that following. Interesting. Now you're right. I want to use this conversation as uh, the base for the following important question that I have. You know, we talked about star power uh, in the last and in the last segment. You said something really interesting. You said movies which were for mass audiences now, and you don't you didn't need to sit there, read or write. Some of them are even silent. It taught them how to be an American. Many immigrants or those born to foreign, uh, to immigrant families. So what I want to ask is this, and I think it's important. That's why this I said this is an important question. Do you think Hollywood reflects America's culture or leads America's culture as to, you know, these are other ways of life. These are other possibilities. These are, I don't know, perhaps progressive alternatives. Well, yeah, I don't mean to dodge your question, but the, the answer is it's both. Like a lot of things. <laughs> and it depends on the film. You know, of yeah. course, Hollywood tends to reflect American culture. Uh, and when I teach, uh, when I teach Hollywood, one of the great things to me, you know, in sort of transmitting uh, this heritage to a, uh, undergraduates is if you pick a film from 1932 you can show the film and teach american the great depression or a film from 1943 america at war and you can really see the films reflect the tensions and the anxieties and the values of america in the 1930s or in the 1940s uh, so they're reflecting hollywood but or reflecting american culture but hollywood often also as you noted is sort of not 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 just reflecting, but sort of giving an aspiration or reasserting a set of values, sometimes really self-consciously uh, asserting a sense of values. And maybe a good example of this is a World War II cinema made during World War II to uh, further America's war aims. Were and, they government-sponsored, government-encouraged? Uh Government encouraged this. There was a, an organization called the Office of War Information that published a booklet to guide Hollywood. But basically, 
Hollywood wanted Washington just to keep your hands off us. Yeah. We know what we're doing. Just tell us in broad terms the kind of films that you think will help the war effort. And we know how to write them and make them. And we so, got this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, we're on board. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a, actually a famous story that might be illustrative of this when uh, the, uh, General Hap Arnold, who is head of the, uh, the Army Air Force, comes to Jack Warner. And they're having lunch in the studio. And Jack Warner of Warner Brothers says, you know, and I think sincerely, what can we at Warner Brothers do to aid this great fight against fascism? You know, what can our studio do? And Hap Arnold says, uh, well, you know, uh, in the Air Force, uh, we have uh, no trouble at all motivating pilots. Everybody wants to be the pilot because they've been looking at your <laughs> movies for 20 years and the pilot gets the girl. So everybody who joins the Air Force <laughs> wants to be a pilot. That's great. And if they get washed out of flight school because they have bad vision or they're colorblind or they're just yeah. not a very good pilot, but they're a terrific navigator or a bombardier or a real rear gunner, they don't have quite the same motivation. So you can anticipate what I'm saying. Yeah. So what I need to do is to make a movie in which everybody's the hero. And so Warner Brothers, it takes a while for Hollywood really to nail this. But Warner Brothers makes this wonderful film in 1943 called Air Force. And just think of the title, Air Force. Yeah. It's not about like, you know, Pilot Smith, hero. It's exactly. About, about the entire B-17 crew. And it's in inclusive. Course, yeah. And in the course of the film, you will not be surprised to hear, everybody aboard the, the, the airplane has a moment of heroism. So the navigator, you know, uh, finds the, 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 the dot in the Pacific that they need to land on. Otherwise, they'll all die. Yeah, <laughs> or the yeah, bombardier. Yeah you know, drops the bombs on the Japanese fleet at the right moment. The rear gunner keeps the Japanese zeros off the tail of the B-17, et cetera, et cetera. And that is- a Was that very, a popular movie? Yeah, very popular. And yeah. in fact, all those films become very popular and they actually teach America this new lesson about teamwork and tolerance. And those are the two great wartime lessons that Hollywood, and here to answer your question, I think they're probably a little ahead of the curve in teaching America the importance of these lessons, because most of our tradition is about the rugged individual, you know, the sheriff, the private yeah, detective, yeah. the individual. And these films teach us the value of teamwork. And then the other great value that Hollywood teaches us during World War II is tolerance. So aboard the VB-17, what kind of people do you have? Well, you got the, it's like the army has issued these ethnicities with statistical precision, right? So you got the Irish guy from Boston, the Italian guy from the Bronx, the Jewish guy from Brooklyn, uh, et cetera, et cetera. All these different types working together for the war effort. And they're all getting along. They're all Americans. And no member of the team is more important than the other member of the team. Right? Okay. So we're talking about values here, if I might interrupt you. This is really interesting. Um, two of which you... Uh, identified as by, by way of examples such as tolerance and teamwork. Yeah, those are the great wartime lessons. Yeah, and this brings me to one of your books, the title of which is Pre-Code Hollywood, Sex, Immorality, and Insurrection in American Cinema, 1930 to 1934. I, I, I read uh, the review for this book, and I just find it fascinating. Um, let's Let me start with this question about the book uh, to put it sort of in context for our audience. What does pre-code mean? Okay, pre-code is a misnomer, <laughs> but we're stuck with it. Uh, pre-code refers to this four-year window of opportunity from 1930 to 1934 
before a document called the Production Code, which is a really elaborate philosophy of the movies and a set of guidelines written by two Roman Catholics, a priest named Father Daniel Lord. Wow. Isn't that a great name for a priest, Father Lord? And a devout Catholic who edited a motion picture journal called Motion Picture Herald, a guy named uh, Martin Quigley. And in 1930, they and the Catholics think that the movies are getting a little too licentious, especially now that sound has come on and people can start making licentious wisecracks. Uh, And so they write up this document called the Production Code. And unlike most censorship documents or censorship strategies, which are about little things, uh, like uh, we don't want you to swear, uh, you can't show nudity, uh, you know, the violence is too explicit. What the Catholics did, and this is if you've had a Catholic education like I have, you know, this is just perfect <laughs> because this is the way uh, that what they wanted to do uh, was to put values into movies. So if you if you if you were at like that, took a, t- a typical censor board, they'd look at a film, you know, they'd get the film at the end of the process, they'd look at it and say that has to go, that has to go, that has to go. The Catholics wanted to be able to say to the filmmakers, you need to put values into your film. Uh, the the uh, the guilty are punished, the virtuous are rewarded. Oh, the authority, wow. The authority of church and state is upheld, and there is a moral universe overseen by a just and loving God. So that's the, a the, lot to ask. It is a lot. And, and you can get the code on the web and you can read it. And the reason it's so effective, and again, Catholics have been censoring art for what, 1500 years at least. Yeah. That, yeah. They had a little experience at it. <laughs> Uh, and they were better at it than the Protestants. And the Protestants get very mad about this, by the way, because what, what ends up happening is that the Catholics get control over Hollywood cinema, the values of Hollywood cinema. Uh, and the way they do this is the the, the moguls, the, which is the, the name for the Hollywood studio heads, agree to the production code in 1930. They say, OK, sounds good. We'll agree to it. Go away. You're bothering us. And, you know, we'll pledge to abide by the code. However, the Great Depression gives Hollywood an incentive to try anything because box office is going down. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Attendance is going down. So they're throwing anything at the wall that can hit, including really sexy, licentious films. You know? How bad? Yeah. What? How yeah. bad was it? Like, well, in comparison. Good, good were they? Uh, they're, they're pretty sexy. And also, more importantly, from a Catholic point of view, it isn't just that the girls have... Uh, you know, use their sexual wiles to get ahead and wear scanty lingerie. More importantly, they don't get punished for doing it. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's this wonderful film called Redheaded Woman starring Jean Harlow, 1932, in which she basically sleeps her way to the top. She's an utter minx. And, you know, she sees a married (laughs) guy that she, you know, wants to get ahead from and she breaks up his marriage and then, you know, continues doing that as she works her way up the economic scale. And at the end of the film, she's getting into a, a Rolls Royce with her sugar daddy, this old guy, at the end of it. And the chauffeur is Charles Boyer, and he looks up at the rearview mirror, and they wink at each other. And that's Oh, the I love it. This, this must have really just riled up Father Lord, who had written this uh, yeah. code. And, and, there, and there are other movies like that. 
Uh, did did it, people like it? Did people go some, more to the theater or were they some, offended? Some they did, but there are a lot of people who really see this, um, not just the Catholics, but uh, educators and newspaper uh, editorialists uh, who really see this as having a bad effect on American culture in the middle of the Great Depression, which is a chaotic, disruptive time to begin with. So long and short of it is in 1934, the Catholics get together, start this organization called the Legion of Decency. Oh. And, yeah. And they say to Hollywood, uh, if these films don't meet our criteria, we're going to tell our people not to go to them. Not just not to go to the films we don't like, but not to go to any of your movies. Oh, and boy, that's a huge boycott. It is. And unlike today, where it wouldn't have any effect, uh, it had an effect in 1934 in the big cities, especially Catholic parishes were really the center of the community. Yeah. And if your local priest said, don't go to this movie, you wouldn't go or, or enough people wouldn't go that it would affect the box office. And it wasn't like everybody had a car in those days where you could drive to the next city where your priest didn't know you. Uh, my father oh, wow. uh, had, a, had a story, which when he told me this, it didn't sound right. Uh, but uh, the more I learned about Hollywood and the Catholic Church, uh, I realized it was a representative anecdote. It's 1933. He lives in Boston here, where I'm from. Uh, typical Boston Irish Catholic kid. And it, he's like 12 years old. He wants to see the new Mae West movie. And Mae West, of course, <laughs> was the famous sexually provocative wisecracker. Yeah. Uh, who could make a phone book sound dirty if she read it. And <laughs> as, he's, as he's walking up to the theater, who does he see next to the, the ticket window but his parish priest, who, of course, knows my father on sight, you know? And my dad just keeps on walking, you know? He's going to buy a ticket. No way. Wait, was, was the, the priest, priest buying tickets? No. No, no. He was there to check that the parish, the parishioners weren't going to the Main West movie. Oh, this is now, so funny. Oh, yeah. And it, it sounds like a, an apocryphal story, but I guarantee it's true. Not only would my father not lie about something like that. Uh, but because uh, I've got accounts of other people having the exact same experience around America. Now, this gives the Catholic Church. So you have to go to the other town to watch the movie. So you're Paris. Well, yeah, but it'd be harder because, you know, you have to pay for the train. You didn't have <laughs> yeah, a yeah, car. Yeah. You know? That's uh, so funny. Yeah. It, 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 but it shows the, the quite real power the Catholic Church had to affect the box office. And the reason the Catholics are more important than the Protestants, even though the Protestants have uh, more people in America, you know, by yeah. population, there are more Protestants than Catholics. The Catholics are hierarchical, of course. So the Pope uh, says yeah. something, it goes down to the Cardinal, the Bishop, to the parish priest. You know, it's a military hierarchy where the Protestants are congregational. So every Protestant church has a different policy. So they can't sort of marshal their people the way the Catholics could. So this gives the Catholic kind of a, a classic uh, a pressure group power. You know, yeah. issue. Uh, and so the, the moguls in 1934, as the box office is going down, they come to the Catholics and say, okay, we'll abide by the production code now. And the Catholics say, uh-uh, you fooled us in 1930. We're not going to fall for that again in 1934. And so they agree to this mechanism where the uh, Motion Picture Association of America will create a, a special agency called the Production Code Administration. Oh, wow. Which will okay. Enforce the production code. So the, the PCA, the Production Code Administration, is, in, uh, is created in 1934 to vet films and to even make it more sure that the Catholics are in charge 
what ethnicity and religion would you say the head of the production code is? Catholic, of course. Catholic, of course. And what ethnicity? Irish, American. Very good. See, mm. do, a, do we still have the PCA? Uh, he heads the PCA. Uh, no, oh, do, do but we, do we? Yeah. No, no, no. no we got yeah. rid of it in 1968. Uh, 1968. See, but uh, you, you're, uh, uh, you know, if my students are paying attention, they they will get the answer. You know, uh, that there is an Irish. Go. Like, and in fact, this is a very influential guy for the next 20 years. He's head of the production code administration. His What's his Joseph, name? Joseph I. Breen. Breen. I. Breen. Uh, this is a fascinating story. Uh, we'll be back after a short break to talk about Hollywood and politics. We'll be back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Professor Doherty, because of Hollywood's cultural impact about which we talked about in our last segment, uh, the power of his stars, his ability to connect to so many Americans at a visceral level, you know, through storytelling and images and what have you, is it fair to say that it was only a matter of time when interest groups and politicians would take aim at Hollywood? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Like from, from the beginning, Everybody knew that movies had remarkable influence on American culture. So uh, censor boards were set up in states and cities to vet the material in, in motion pictures. Uh, some politicians tried to self-consciously use cinema. Uh, but throughout the first, wow. you know, let's say, 40 years of Hollywood history or so, the industry would always present itself as an entertainment machine. You know, you come to the movies to escape your woes. Uh, things are bad during the Great Depression. Come on into the movies and uh, watch Fred and Ginger dance in Art Deco apartments and escape uh, your humdrum life for a while. That, that's how the movies presented themselves as a pure entertainment machine. Now, yeah. of course, we always knew it had amazing influence uh, and hence the censor boards. And people wrote about, you know, things like... You know, girls started changing the way they dress, their haircuts, as did men. You know, the famous example of Clark Gable, and it happened one night. He takes off his shirt, no undershirt, undershirt sales plummet. Uh, and, <laughs> and so if a star, if, if a star uh, an attractive star did something, there'd be girls all, all over America imitating her. So we knew movies had that impact. But the, the crucial moment, I think, comes during World War II. We were talking about this uh, a little bit earlier where Hollywood starts being marshaled and it marshals itself for avowedly ideological reasons. So we're fighting the Nazis and Hollywood has to promulgate a set of values that will teach Americans how best to fight the Nazis. Okay, So it's not like we have to be persuaded after Pearl Harbor that we need to fight World War II. You know, the movies yeah. don't tell us we need to fight World War II. That's not the question Americans have. What the movies are telling us is 
these are the skills and values you need to fight World War II. And in this war, it might be more important to have, uh, say, a German translator in your unit than to have a great rifleman, right? And of course, the rifleman makes a better film because <laughs> he shoots and, you know, it's uh, the, the yeah, normal yeah. heroic courage. But we got to find a way to kind of celebrate other kinds of courage in this. Uh, you know, that, uh, And the phrase they used during World War II was, I did my bit. And that meant I joined. I did my bit. Okay. I did my bit. Did, yeah, and, and that would be sort of the modest way to say it. And people really had the sense. You served in uniform during World War II. You know, you didn't have to storm the beaches at Normandy to be a hero, you know, like uh, you know, in the, the Hollywood connection that a lot of people talked about. You know, they did amazing work with instruction and education at the Disney studios and at Warner Brothers, especially. Uh, and a lot of times, like the animators at Disney would say, you know, I fought the Battle of Beverly Hills. You know, I went from, <laughs> you know, having Donald Duck make, you know, jokes to explaining radar and explaining sonar to, you know, an average high school educated American. And they did that by pictures. It turned to be a very animation, a very supple and powerful medium. And, you know, that generation, uh, you know, the cartoonists, they, they talk about this in some interviews. They say, well, you know, we knew we had it soft. We weren't like in Guadalcanal. But people realized they really made a, a contribution because the cartoonists, when they went to reunions, would run into, say, a combat soldier and say, oh, yeah, my, my Jeep broke down. And I remember that, you know, the illustrations in that manual. Oh, really I love saved, that. Really saved my ass. And, yeah. And so there was that sense during World War II that movies communicate values. They're powerful political tools. Right? So let's, yeah, they are. So let's talk about what happens next. And I want to talk about that in the context of your book, which is titled Show Trial, Hollywood, HUAC and the Birth of the Blacklist. What is this book about? Well, HUAC is the uh, the acronym for the House on american Activities Committee. HUAC yeah. is the way you pronounce it. Uh, the official name okay. Uh, House Committee on Un-American Activities is invariably abbreviated HUAC for purposes of pronunciation because you can't say HUAC very, very easily. <laughs> uh, so the House on american Activities Committee forms in 1940, or it, it forms in the 30s, but it has a celebrated uh, set of hearings in October of 1947, accusing Hollywood of uh, communist subversion. Yeah. Uh, which, not, of course, it sounds incredible, giving... Uh, I mean, how does it go so sour so quickly? Well, that that's a real good question. And and poor Jack Warner, who had contributed immensely to the war with his instruction films, his exactly. on the Air Force and Casablanca, who's getting awards from the government for yeah, his yeah. efforts, is called before HUAC and sort of being accused of subverting American culture. He's really befuddled, and I think understandably so. The the reason it goes so sour, and, and this is one thing that HUAC uh, in a way gets right is everybody in America knows that Hollywood is not just this dumb entertainment machine, but that Hollywood is a powerful transmission belt for ideas and ideology. We learned that during World War II. Okay? Yeah. And so after World War II, when certain actors and screenwriters are accused of communist subversion because of the, their party membership or being a part of left-wing activity in the 1930s, it allows the House on American Activities Committee to kind of, uh, you know, exploit the popularity and uh, and stardom of Hollywood personalities 
you know, kind of for their own ideological ends. But the one thing they do get right is that Hollywood is an important transmission belt for values. And this hearing especially, I think, is sort of the the launch pad for virtually every argument we're going to have about media and politics forever after. Yeah. Because when we go to when we want to talk about an issue like race in America or gender in America or class, we tend to go to Hollywood cinema to talk about that. Right. Yeah. So uh, and that's sort of the starting of that. And it's the starting also of our reimagining of Hollywood, not as an ephemeral entertainment machine, but as a powerful ideological weapon in the fights we're going to have in the post-war era over totalitarianism and freedom, uh, restriction on rights versus free expression, due process versus you know railroading somebody by accusation. In the first segment, I think it was of our conversation, you talked about early movies uh, and one of the good things about it, well, good things, one of the one of the ways that it made it easy is that you didn't need to read or write, especially for immigrants or children of immigrants. And I suppose at home they spoke their own native tongue more than English. So movies were influential and continue to be influential afterwards. What's really funny is that we're in the 21st century where reading and writing is not an issue. <laughs> People rather watch movies than read books, right? Uh, yeah, uh, depend on the individual. Uh, <laughs> uh, but they are this, I think most of us, you know, what, what I like to do in my classes is to give people a little kind of background on cinema and some maybe a critical eye on movies, because that's how we get so much of our history and our cultures through motion pictures. Yeah. So you can learn a lot if you look at a motion picture with kind of active eyes. And, and um, you know, I always say to students, uh, the most important thing in terms of uh, looking at a movie critically, is just look at the date. And if so, it's a 1943 movie. You're going to learn something about World War II. Uh, almost invariably, the film will address what's going on. Uh, and you can uh, always, by looking at films with a critical eye, get, I think, a fairly good education. Uh, and some of it, and whether it's sort of the, the big education you get, I'm watching a World War II movie, or if you're really a detail freak, and want to learn more about World War II, uh, there'll be things in a World War II movie that audiences in World War II got, but you usually don't get. And have you ever had the experience of watching an older film and a line will go over your head or a reference? Oh, yeah. I think in, in a break, I was telling you about how my parents watch older movies and sometimes yeah. they laugh at things and I'm just, I don't follow. Why is that funny? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, so, and usually that stuff is not important, just like really the minor details. And if you know them, you feel really smug and superior. But if you don't know them, no big deal. But every so often, there'll be kind of a gesture or a, uh, a sign in a film that when you learn it uh, and watch it through the eyes of the 1946 audience, for example, there's one of my favorite films. Now, it's just been a great book uh, written on it, uh, is uh, The Best Years of Our Lives, 1946, a William Wyler film, and it's about three returning war veterans uh, and their problems of readjustment in America. They've all they've been at, uh, at war for you know three or four years, and they come back to this America that seems 
virtually untouched by the war. And in fact, things are better now than when they left. You know, there's this prosperity. <laughs> you know, everybody can buy a steak. There are cars, you know, uh, and uh, they're kind of looking at it wide eyed. In a way, this is everything they're fought for, but it's deeply alienating. Uh, to them, and one of the soldiers, and, and, and people back home now they have to return are not connecting with all the atrocities and the trauma that, they went through. Yeah, okay, yeah, they have no idea. And and there's a scene where one of the soldiers he's trying to get uh, a uh, 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 a seat on a plane, but there are no seats on the plane, and he puts his arm up like this, and on his uniform sleeve you can see several stripes. Now. We don't know what that is today. Everybody in 1946 knew they were called hash marks and yeah. you got them for service overseas, usually you know, one hash mark for six months. So this guy has a sleeve full of hash marks. Oh, wow. And he's really been in the stuff. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, he's yeah. the guy that can't get a seat on the airplane where this golfer next to him has got his reservations. <laughs> so do they let him onto the plane? No, they don't. He has to go across the tarmac to uh, get a mil you know, to hop a military uh, uh, plane back. Ah. Um, but it's kind of thing that you know. I I love those details in Hollywood movies because it's uh, what we call referential meaning. That w when you know that detail, it makes the film so much richer. So yeah. But you know, it might be a little kind of detailed, but you can always learn those those kind of things from motion pictures if you look at them with a critical eye and you you really like sometimes they really reward uh the study and oftentimes it's a matter of just you know asking the older guy next to you you know for for years you know i had this world war ii generation that anytime something happened in a world war ii film before the age of google you could you know just ask your uncle or this other yeah, old guy yeah yeah you know, like all my teachers in the 60s and 70s were World War II vets. And if there were a question, you could just ask the guy, you know. Uh, Next time I watch an old movie, I'll ask my parents. They're 93 and 85, so I'm sure there'll be uh, just a fountain of information on that. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Doherty as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Professor Doherty, um, I think most of us... Uh, read about or watched uh, Ms. Fran Drescher's passionate speech last week about Hollywood's uh, strike. Um, what I want to know is not so much the news analyzing what's happening now. It's, it's the history. In, we've had strikes in Hollywood's history, uh, several uh, major ones. Did they ignite the same type of reaction from Americans uh, similar to, let's say, steel workers go on strike, teachers go on strike, or auto workers go on strike? Well, there's a famous uh, phrase somebody had in Hollywood. He says, everybody has two businesses, their own in the motion picture business. So we all talk <laughs> because right? we all go to the movies so we all think we're experts not only on the art of cinema but on the production of cinema as well so yeah, Hollywood yeah that's a good uh, point. it's always fun again 
more uh, attention and influence than, say, your average uh, teacher union strike, even if it yeah. happens to affect unless it happens to affect your kids. So, uh, so the you know the Hollywood uh, union. One of the re- we were talking earlier about one of the reasons that uh, uh, Hollywood becomes a production center is that the unions were very weak. Uh, Los Angeles was uh, uh, kind of an open city. Uh, for Interesting. Workers. So one of the reasons to go out to Hollywood is the workers weren't unionized. Now, as the studio system starts uh, uh, clicking in the 1920s, and especially uh, with the onset of sound, where it becomes really like an industrial factory, where you need a lot of experts, electricians, uh, you know, cinematographers, uh, carpenters, that it, it really becomes uh, an industry. The yeah. uh, the so-called below the line or blue collar people who you actually need to build the sets and wire the sets start unionizing. And there are a lot of different unions, but the one that sort of becomes emblematic is IATSE, which is the International Association of Stage and Theatrical Employees. It originally was a Broadway union, and they come out and take over the, uh, uh, the, the you know, the, basically the soundstage workers uh, in Hollywood. And they kind of operate the way an old-fashioned trade union would operate, right? And with all the kind of corruption that that would imply, it was basically <laughs> a mobbed-up union up until the 1940s. Uh, and it's still, uh, I mean, it, it, it's nothing like it was, but it, it was seriously mobbed up throughout the 30s. Wow. Uh, and that's the way the, uh, the moguls kept peace on the soundstage, because if the projectionist strike, for example, it means there's no income coming in. So they wielded a lot more power than the average screenwriter in, oh, uh, wow. in the 20s and 30s. Now, beginning in 1933 or so, the uh, the so-called guilds start forming and they're, uh, you know, a guild is always fancier and has more expertise. At, uh, because uh, guilds are, yeah, quote guilds unquote, are craftsmen. Right. And it goes back to Europe and exactly creatures uh, and everything, as you probably know. And so that's when the screenwriters, the screen actors and the screen directors uh, start unionizing. And also FDR is in office and it's a friendlier regime in Washington, finally, uh, for workers' rights. And all those unions are basically uh, early on recognized as closed shops that will represent the screenwriters, the actors, uh, and and the directors. Now, in, in, 19, in, in the 1950s, what happens, and this is related to what's happening today in some ways, uh, there's another huge revenue stream uh, from television. And so all the films ah. made in the classical Hollywood era in the 30s and 40s can now be sold to television. And the talent who created this material uh, doesn't get a piece of the action at all because nobody in, who made a film in 1938 is thinking, oh, I got to put something in my contract so I'll get television residual. <laughs> they, they didn't have the gift of that far, uh, farsight. So there's all kinds of squabbles and strikes and disagreements. And in 1960, it, it really starts coming to a head because the, the unions now have won a piece of the action in the future and they want to renegotiate the deal from 1948 to 1960. So both the Screen Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild go out on strike. It's a double strike, very similar to what we're having today, where both the writers and the actors wow. have gone out together. Okay. And the last time that happened was in 1960. Yeah. And in both cases, technology played a bit, new technology played yeah. a 
particular course, role. The new technology in 1960 is television. Yeah. And the new technology now is streaming. And the issue is the talent, rightly, I think, wants a bigger piece of the pie. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Because money's coming into the, uh, uh, the producers and the people who own the product, but the talent isn't getting a slice of that. And I think most of us feel that's a real instinctive injustice. So, uh, you know, the classic example in television and film history is the Three Stooges, who we all know the Three Stooges from yeah. their, their short films made yeah. in the 1930s. They yeah. were shown everywhere in the 1950s and 60s on television. They're probably circulating somewhere on TV as we speak. They didn't get a dime from those movies, not a dime, because it wasn't in their contract, you know. So the, all those Columbia shorts that were sold to TV and made the Three Stooges universally famous, they got no resid residuals from. And so that's what this this deal is partly about. So in a way, it's parallel to the 1960s strike. But as you just mentioned, I think one thing that is really different, and this might be the way, you know, one of the reasons maybe we're more interested in this strike than previous strikes isn't just because it'll affect what we can watch on Netflix. Uh, because, you know, this, uh, you know, the Netflix phenomenon uh, or the streaming phenomenon really gives Hollywood less power. Because yeah. if if Hollywood films don't start coming out, I can watch true crime documentaries from France, you know, from Netflix. <laughs> you know, right? True. We all yeah. still have our diversion. Yeah. So yeah. that wasn't true in 1960. So they kind of have less heft. And then the other element, and I and I really do Dale, think this is new, and we really need to start figuring out what's going on with artificial intelligence in terms of the uh, the content that the writer brings to it. That AI is using as a pattern or appropriating line for line. Uh, and then for actors where the studios want your, your visage, they want your face. Yeah. They want to be able to use it forever and not just your face, but your voice, your body. And now you are theirs in a way you never were before. So if I performed in you know a film in 1960, I could say, well, you're paying me for the film and I want, six year on residuals or a better contract would be residuals in perpetuity. As long as the producer's making money, I'm making money too. But if I'm signing away a picture of myself, you know, in perpetuity, he, he can do what he wants with it. And, it. and it's, I think really a new issue and maybe why we're sort of paying attention to this. That wait, is, wait, 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 uh, professor Doherty, based on what you're saying, if you are, selling in perpetuity licensing uh your image yeah then arguably the movies and i use that term broadly can go make another movie with ai with your face in it yeah so in a way wow. it makes tom cruise obsolete because if <laughs> i can get tom cruise the hologram tom cruise and put him in an ai mission impossible 7 then why do I need somebody to write it? And why do I need Tom Cruise? Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. So I know. It, it, it's it's really kind of spooky and frightening. I don't know if we're over-exaggerating it. But when Fran Drescher says, uh, we're all you know we're all being taken over by machines. Yeah, she said uh, that, yeah. It's actually be worse than that. Because when you lose your job to a machine, you've just lost your job. Where, where with AI, they got all of you. Right, They're, you're losing yourself. 
there may not be a need for you to come back five years from now, even to another type of job, because as an actor or whatever. Why do they need you five years from now? I've, 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 I've got you in my hard drive. Let me just clarify for myself. Maybe I did not process this, hear this correctly. Are you saying that the big strike, which was based on a conflict between this new technology TV and the movie theaters, was in the, in the night in 1960 affected Americans more than this current strike? Oh, no, no, no. I didn't, I didn't mean to imply that at all. Okay. What happens in 1960s is kind of a, a normal deal where yeah. labor wants a bigger uh, piece of the pie and management wants as much of the piece of the pie as they can, you know, hold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so, and you come to an arrangement at some point because there's so much money flowing in that in the end, nobody wants to screw up the racket. Right. Yeah, yeah. And you're going to argue over, you know, the pieces of the pie, but the pie's getting bigger. So you have a, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the stimulus to kind of come to an arrangement with these annoying, but necessary people who write the movies and appeal and appear in them. <laughs> that right? make it happen. But yeah. now it's different. The pie may not necessarily be getting bigger for the movie yeah. industry. I see. And also you might be able to eliminate those annoying people. That make that's, your life that's, difficult. Who that's, uh, write the film and uh, and act in it, right? Yeah, because you're not going to get any uh, argument from the AI in your hard drive. Exactly, that's both frightening and unfair. Um, if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about Hollywood and Hollywood's history, what would that be? Uh, well, it's sort of what we've been talking about for the last hour, which is movies matter. The reason we're talking about them is that it isn't just that it's this pleasant diversion that we all like, and we yeah. like to go to movies for our entertainment and talk about them afterwards, uh, but they matter in a whole bunch of other ways, that they are uh, repositories of our history, they communicate our culture, they communicate our values, uh, and, at the best, and, and at their best, I think they can have a really wonderfully progressive impact on us it can make you know they can make us more tolerant and yeah yeah no that they uh you know there, there's a reason we always talk about movies and, and I, it isn't just because we like to go to the mall <laughs> uh professor doherty thank you so much for educating me and our listeners and to our listeners if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective Thank you so very much. A pleasure. Nice chatting with you, Dale. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news. 
support a history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.